The following is brought to you by the Starfleet Podcast Network, SPN, The Spin. My very first line on Star Trek Next Generation Best of Both Worlds was, projections suggest that a Borg ship like this one could continue to function effectively, even if 78% of it were rendered inoperable. And to make it sound like you talk that way all the time. That was good. That was, I'll never forget that line for as long as I live, because the first day of shooting, I could not say it to save my life. I couldn't say, I thought they were going to fire me. They should have fired me. If it was now, they would fire me. A red alert. I'm Big J with Beyond Trek Podcast. I'm here with, with Elizabeth Dennehy, who played Lieutenant Commander Elizabeth Shelby on Star Trek The Next Generation, Best of Both Worlds Part 1 and 2, and then Fleet Admiral Shelby in Season 3 of Star Trek Picard. This is... The question I've wanted to ask you since we got this, this set up to talk uh, to one another, when you were offered this role for TNG, at the time, was it just another role, another gig, or did you have any idea going into it that you'd be playing a part that was in such an integral moment, not only of the show outside of universe, but also in-universe, something that has stayed and been a part of Star Trek, both outside and inside. So did you know that going in or was this just another part? So that's a multi-pronged question. Uh, I was 28. I was new to L.A. I was very haughty. I um, thought was a classically trained actor. Um, and I never watched the original series, had no idea what Next Gen was knew nothing and kind of a little bit like, oh, I'm going in for some stupid sci-fi show. I'm sorry. I apologize, everybody. I really <laughs> do. I apologize. I was 28. I was cocky. And I I remember going into the room. In the waiting room, I saw Joanna Pakula, who had just done Gorky Park with my father. Mm -hmm. And when I saw her, I was like, Holy shit, she's like a big star and she's here. Am I allowed to curse? Sorry. And yeah, absolutely. Here. It's not a kid's show. Don't worry. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I did not take this seriously enough. This is a big star is here. So that kind of brought me back down to earth. And then uh, unbelievably, I got it. And when I was on the show, I mean, this is how ignorant I was. I was, re I read the script had never seen the show. And this is before you could pull up a show on YouTube and catch up and figure out who everybody was. You couldn't open up on your phone who were the cast list on Next Gen. I went in there going, oh, you're Riker? I thought Riker was the bald guy. Oh, <laughs> I was completely ignorant. And so Jonathan had worked with my dad before. He had done theater with my father and he was really, really lovely really nice. I had a tiny like honey wagon. He had a huge trailer. He said, you know, come in, use my phone, do, make yourself at home, whatever you want. And he said to me, you have absolutely no idea what this means or what is in store for you. And I was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And he just smiled and boy, he, he sure didn't know what he was talking about. No, I had no idea, no clue. And that was, as you got to know the the cast and the and the characters, is this something that you've 
I guess, do you see it the way the way that we do that uh, how instrumental your character was, or at least in the part that was such a big happening because this event that takes place in the two episodes that you're in is has stayed with with the franchise pretty much forever. Even the appearance that you make in season three of Picard has fed off of off of that, of course, which I'm sure is a big reason that you're able to come back into it was because making that connection, kind of rounding it back up. What was what was that like getting that phone call to say, we want you to be in this episode, this season of this show? It was very interesting. I, uh, you know, it's it, it, for 30 years since I was 28 when I did the, the um, Next Gen. And something that's really, really important to, to that will help make a lot of sense for everything else I say after this is when we shot part one, we did not see the script for part two. We had no idea what was going to happen. We had no idea how this was going to resolve. And people would say to me, I was like, what's the big freaking deal? And they would say to me, you don't understand. Nobody has ever questioned Riker's authority. No, they've never done a cliffhanger before. So I actually think it was great that I had no reverence for it. And it wasn't precious to me that I was just like, what is the deal? Why Why is everybody going crazy? Because that's what the way Shelby is. Shelby is like, I don't care if you like me or not. I have a job to do and I want to do the job successfully so that I keep getting promoted. She's very ambitious and she wants to keep moving up. So if I had been precious and reverent and intimidated and you consumed with the enormity of it all, I think it would have prevented me from doing my job. I think that that's... The same way, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, the same was that way last part? The same way it would have prevented Shelby from doing her job. If she had been intimidated or cowed in any way or subservient or obsequious and trying to, you know, oh, let's like, let's make, let the, let's let the men think it's their idea or, you know, I'll just wait for permission to do what my ideas. Um, so you always look for when your characters given circumstances and the actors given circumstances mesh, it makes it so much easier to, to do your job. I didn't know it at the time, but now looking back with hindsight, I can say, thank God I didn't go in there, you know, freaking out. I was brand new to town. The only time I'd ever worked on camera had been commercials and I did a, I did a soap opera for a year. And so um, it was a whole new way of working. And I think I was brash, not by balls and confidence, but brash by sheer stupidity. I didn't know, I had no idea that it was um, so monumentally important to so many people until of course, after the fact. When I got the call for uh, Picard, um, it was a very funny chain of events, which Jonathan says was not it just sheer co coincidence. In November of 21, November of 2021, when things were sort of slowly starting to open back up after the quarantine, we were still flying with masks. We were still providing negative test reports you know, reports before you could do anything or go anywhere. I was asked to do a convention in London. 
uh, and it was my husband's birthday and we were like, yay, we love London. And we got on the plane and we flew with John Billingsley and we were dro- driven to um, the hotel and we did this convention and I met for the first time, Alice Krieg, is that how you Krieg. Krieg? Yeah, Alice Krieg. Krieg, who was lovely. She had worked with my dad, so we told, we had lots of stories and we got along really well. And I said to her, we've got to take a selfie. It'll drive you know, the fans crazy. And for me, I don't, I don't really get Twitter. I don't understand it, but I posted a picture of the two of us. And, you know, for me, like 2000 likes and shares was big. That was big. <laughs> I went viral, mini viral. Mini viral. <laughs> I swear to God, that was on a, I came home on a Monday. The convention was Saturday and Sunday, flew home on a Monday. The phone rang for my agent. After 30 years, and I thought, wow, that was a powerful tweet. But Jonathan didn't know anything about it. I I think it was just coincidence that Terry Madalas was trying to come up. He had this idea of a few people from Next Gen, the original, um, not original, but the Next Gen cast of people that he wanted to have come back, like Michelle Forbes. And I, thank God, made it on that list. So when I got the call, it was like, this is after 30 years for those two things to happen in the same weekend is kind of mind blowing and kind of crazy. So um, that was in November. And I said, yes, of course, Um, got the script probably sometime in January. And then we shot one day in February and it was still shooting was like still, you know, fully masked, uh, test results every single day. Every time I showed up for a costume fitting, test results every day. Um, And, uh, you know, stay away from people, social distancing. And I think at the time, every all the shows were trying to shoot with as few people in in congregating as possible. So I was all by myself. I never even saw Patrick. Uh, I saw the people in the makeup trailer. I saw uh, Marina and LeVar and Jonathan, of course, and um, never saw Patrick. So... It was in and out, bing, bang, boom, in an hour. And that was something interesting you brought up with Michelle Forbes coming back, playing the part of Rolaren and you coming in. I That was a complete surprise to me. I did not see that coming for a, a mile away. That was that was great to see. Uh, getting Getting back to this role and being with everyone, did you feel like that you were also a part of, I guess that we can call the quote unquote TNG reunion season that this was? Uh, Did you feel more of a part of it now as opposed to when you were in TNG where you think you felt more of like an outsider? Not really, because I was so, I just acted by myself, you know, I just had this speech, to the camera. And so when I later, when I saw them, them all congregating on the bridge on the ship, and I thought, no, that, I mean, those are the next gen people. That's the original cast. So I know I didn't feel that much a a part of it, uh, to be honest. Um, You know, Michelle and I go way, way, way back. She and I were on the guiding light together. And she's one of my original best besties from, you know, showbiz uh, in the industry. Um, and I just saw her on the picket line uh, a few times. So, and I never got to work with her. So um, if I had scenes with Jonathan, probably I would have felt like, 
but it you know it didn't matter i mean the fact that they remembered and that they brought me back you know it was it was huge it was really really lovely you brought up something that was really interesting that kind of reminded me of my own personal experience it's uh in this will kind of connect to your love of theater i've seen a lot of posts you've had on facebook that are theater related going to different shows and, and so forth in your theater background but uh, when I was in high school, we were doing a play called A Few Good Men. And at the time, of course, I had heard about it. I think everyone had. Everybody knew the uh, you can't handle the truth line, Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise. But I had never seen it. And when I went for the audition for the uh, for one of the roles, the theater director asked me, she said, have you ever seen the movie? And I said, no, actually, I, I haven't. She said, OK, don't. Don't watch it. And that was a direction given to anyone who was cast that if you have not seen it, don't. If you have, don't go and rewatch it right now. And I think that what that was able to do, at least in my case, is it kept me from feeling like I had to uh, do an impersonation of the actor that played the character in the movie that I'm doing. And I was able to come into it with with my own with my own portrayal and in, in looking at this part of the uh, I played Lance Corporal Dawson, uh, who was one of the two Marines responsible for the uh, uh, for the murder of uh, Private Santiago. And in reading the script, reading the lines, I was able to make my own interpretation of the character and to play it without the the movie in my head and, and not trying to. Uh, I guess trying to emulate that, which was, I guess it was a good thing because once we finally did the uh, the opening night of the play, our opening night after like after party at one of our friends' house, we watched the movie, and then I finally got to see the movie for the first time and saw the character that I played, and I thought I did this a lot better than that guy did. The way this guy played it, that's that's horrible. That's not that's not good. I had had a whole lot more passion and angry and, and yelling and just more presence and all of that. So I think I, I get what you're saying is that you can play a part and you can come in acting it very differently when you don't know the source material, where you don't walk in with that intimidation, with that being a, a, a factor in it. So I completely get what you're saying there. So want to hear some more about your theater so let's let's talk about that. Are you are uh, there's a any upcoming shows that you're going to in the theater? Is there one that you, I guess, have a favorite that you like to uh, oh. like to see? Um, well, um, I was brought up going to the theater. My father was an actor my whole life, and uh, going to see him in shows. I'm going to see a play tonight. I go to the theater a lot. Um, I was doing a play right before the COVID actually. As a matter of fact, we closed February 2nd, 2020, right right before uh, COVID happened. And uh, I the play was great. I had so much fun doing it. It was called The Humans and it was down at San Diego Rep. And, you know, just what I wanted to say about what you just said is um, actors, the mistake actors make is by playing their given circumstances instead of the characters. So what I mean by that is if somebody is trying to get a laugh and they're if they're on stage and they're thinking oh this character is supposed to be funny i'm supposed to be getting a laugh 
the actor is playing his given circumstances. Maybe the character is deadly, deadly serious and trying really hard to be serious. The character doesn't think there's anything funny about their situation. So um, you were taking the script and you figured out who am I? Who am I talking to? What is it I'm trying to achieve? What are my obstacles? What are my tactics and strategies to overcome the obstacles? What do I stand to win if I achieve my goal? What do I lose if I don't achieve my goal? Which are your stakes? Fight to win, trying to win. And so the great thing about what your teacher did for you is he freed you to create your set of given circumstances. And if you are the actor playing your given circumstances, what am I trying to achieve? How you say it, how you do it, how you play it will be perfect. But if you were playing, oh, I need to say this line this way, then you're playing your given circumstances, not the characters. So you were free with an unblemished, uh, premeditated take on your acting to go in there and pursue the character's goals and not your own. And so that was a big favor that your teacher did for you. So I, um, I taught for six years acting Shakespeare at the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts. And I love, love, love teaching and coaching. I do a lot of coaching for uh, kids who are auditioning for arts high schools and college. And uh, I wish I was doing a play now. I really wish I, I'm in a kind of a limbo thing right now because in 22, I was cast in Kevin Costner's sprawling four part movie saga, uh, Horizon. And I did movie one in September 22, did Ju in June movie two, and then they were supposed to do movie three in October, but then the strike happened. So it's hard for me. I don't know when I'm going to be going back. I think probably not until March, um, but I would love to do a play. I would love to get back on stage to answer your question in a very roundabout way. That's great. I'd, I wanted to tell you this other story that I've had because I wanted to ask about, I've, I don't think I've ever asked this in regards to just the learning of the lines. You sort of just read it, you know, that actors need to do it. And that's just the thing. But I've never really thought when you're when you're doing something, especially if you're on a on a show that's a week to week basis now and that you had more time to like focus and prepare on uh, on the part, let's just say, for best of both worlds. Um, do you do, do the actors spend like how, how much of that time do you need to dedicate to your sitting, you're reading the lines, you're memorizing? Because that was something when when I did that play. I mean, that's that's a lot of memorizing. You just rehearse it, rehearse it. You have it in your head. But see, we had a couple months or so to prepare to keep going through that and doing that. And when you're on a a weekly show or you're in something that you you just come in for that week or two, I would imagine that you don't have as much time for, for that kind of preparation. Not to mention, you're not filming in order. You're kind of kind of all over the place. I can't imagine that. I can't tell you how many times I've had that that dream where is the way that the play opened was it's myself and uh, the actor playing the uh, the other, you know, the other guy who was uh, on trial were on the stage and the the curtains coming up and of course the lights are so bright you can't see anything you feel like you're just in this white room and i had the first lines in the whole play so you talk about pressure it, it opened up with me speaking and 
there's this anxiety I, I always have, and I've had dreams about this, forgetting the lines that I went into the play and I didn't read the script at all, which would be a nightmare. So how do you, do you ever have those moments where you feel like no matter how much time I sat and read a script, I, you, you're not able to memorize it or do you just like get prompts as you're going there? How did, how do you do that? Well, first of all, something that helps a lot is when you realize they're not lines, they're thoughts. Thoughts. Okay. Their thoughts being expressed. So you had the first line on stage that the audience sees, but you had dialogue and a life before you walked through the door. Okay. Yeah. So you're talking to somebody in the life before the audience sees your life. So it's, you're in the, in the middle of living your life and now all of a sudden your life is happening on stage. Wow. Wow, that's that's good. I never thought of it that way. That is very interesting because you're right. There is there's a whole life, whole background there. It, the, the character didn't just start with that line. There's a whole background behind it. Wow. So I, I can see how you're, you're really good at the teaching part in, in doing this because you said several things like, oh, my God, I've never thought of looking at something that way. So if you remembered that they're thoughts and not lines, lines yeah. means some like homework. That sounds like homework to me. Yeah. But thoughts, I'm, for instance, I had the very first line that the audience heard in the humans bringing my uh, mother-in-law in a wheelchair on stage. There we go. What else am I going to say? Right. It's the most natural thing in the world to say. So you imagine we got out of the car, put her into the chair. I probably said, there we go, 15 times by the time we got the door, car door open into the apartment. There we go. And now I'm saying it for the 15th time as we are wheeled onto the stage. You're never going to forget it because the thought that's filled in your brain, it's the only thing that makes sense to say. That is. Okay. Yeah. That's another good point. I can totally understand yeah. that. But then there are times when your language that you have to speak makes absolutely no sense. And in, in Next Generation, Best of Both Worlds, there are two instances of this where oh my God, I didn't think I was going to be able to do it. Where if a line makes sense, like there we go, or the first line that you, the first line the audience heard when you started A Few Good Men, it makes total sense. The thought fills your head and it comes out your mouth at the same time. But my very first line on Star Trek Next Generation Best of Both Worlds was, projections suggest that a Borg ship like this one could continue to function effectively, even if 78% of it were rendered inoperable. And to make it sound like you talk that way all the time. That was good. That was, I'll never forget that line for as long as I live because the first day of shooting, I could not say it to save my life. I couldn't say, I thought they were going to fire me. They should have <laughs> fired me. If it was now, they would fire me. Uh, I couldn't get it out of my mouth. I hadn't worked hard enough on it. I didn't realize a lot of people think, oh, I know the line. And I can tell they don't, especially young people. It's very surface. You need to know it in your bones. You need to know them so well that you can't screw them up. And I didn't know that, that I learned the hard way. I thought I was going to be fired. And it was just, 
I knew it on a surface level, but like the surface of my brain, but it needed to be language that this woman uses all the time. Another one that will be on my tombstone is separate the saucer section, assign a skeleton crew to create a diversion. The muscle memory involved, the gymnastics that my mouth has to do in order to say that line mm -hmm. as if it's the most natural thing in the world, because it's filled with S sounds, yeah. separate the saucer section, assign a skeleton crew to create a diversion. It's a real tongue twister. It and is. That, I probably... I probably spent half a day just learning that line and getting it around, you know, my lips and my muscles to work hard enough to make it uh, articulate so that, and so that everybody could understand what I was. I also, another thing that really helped me was I thought, okay, let's break this down. What is the saucer section? Oh, it's that half dome thing that's on the ship, right? Well, to separate that means to pull it apart, make it go away from the ship, separate the saucer section, assign a skeleton crew, a bare bones crew, they're going to create a diversion. And then when I broke it down like that, this is what I'm saying, they're not lines, they're thoughts. When I broke the thoughts down and made them make sense, it was so much easier to learn. And you raise a very good point that the lines aren't always just lines. You need to understand what you're saying and understand the language. and. The part that it sounds like you have the challenge with is what we like to call the techno babble. You're you're saying these things, and it's okay. I I'm saying the words, but I don't understand what it is I'm saying because of the you have that language barrier, and I think that can happen with with any profession that anyone's in. And I've I face that a lot. I I work in IT, and we have our own language. I don't know if you've ever worked with a computer guy or technical support, but we speak our own language. It might as well be. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. I am techno Amish and people will explain to me at the Genius Bar or friends who are, my son is a, is a whiz. He's a film filmmaker. And so he can just do anything. And when he starts talking about gigabytes and watts and everything, my brain just turns off. <laughs> so you know, I, I I applaud you guys. I don't know how you do it. I, I don't know how Brent did it. I honestly don't know how Brent Spiner did it because just those two lines, you said that uh, I know them, I will know them for the rest of my life. So they live forever, real estate embedded in my skull, in my brain forever because, and I don't remember the lines I had in the humans, which was the most recent thing, you know, where I had, or, or frankly, Horizon, but those, those lines are carved in stone in my brain because it was so, so hard to learn them. They so came up perfectly. Brent, I know. <laughs> now I say projections suggest perfectly, but I couldn't on the day when I was getting paid to. <laughs> you took me back to uh, summer, uh, well, just before summer of 1990 with the lines there. Like I'm, I'm picturing it in my head, the episode itself. And let me just, excuse me, let me just tell you the, the kind of impact that, that you had in, in the episode that you were in that, that this had. So did you ever watch it? Did you ever watch the actual episode at any point, like when it aired or, or after the fact? Oh, of course. Um, okay. As a matter of fact, they aired 
Yes, because it was the season finale. Yes. And then you had to wait this for um, part two. Did they air part one and part two when the season started up again, or was it just part two? Oh, uh, so let's say, let, let's see, when uh, when the season four started. I want to say, I knew, you know what, that's a good question. I don't know if they showed part one just before airing part two. I, I don't recall that. Um, I'm sure somebody out there who's listening knows the answer to this. But I remember Michael Dorn came to my house to watch um, the first part. And uh, I was living in Venice Beach at the time and I was blown away. I felt like I was watching a movie. The special effects and the music and everything was so, so good. It was uh, it was really amazing. The part that is the right right at the last scene as as the music's crescendoing you're standing next to jonathan the camera starts to kind of do that do that turn where you're steadily going out of frame and it's, and it's on him and he says mr wharf fire to be continued comes up let me just tell you that in in spring of 1990 at that point i don't think anyone had ever gone through that kind of experience it created shock let me just tell you just how much in shock that I was, was that I remember standing there looking at the TV. I was recording the episode and see at the, the at the time I was uh, I was going to be 13 that fall. And so I know that the episode was over and that it, whatever was coming on after that, whatever show was, was was there. But I, I remember doing this. I paused the VCR and I rewound the tape a little bit and played it again. I remember thinking in my head, the episode will continue if I just play it again on the VCR. That was how messed up I, I know I was just at seeing a, a cliffhanger. That was, and that ended like that, just playing the scene in my head with the music and everything, the piano, whatever it was, it gives you chills. It really gives you chills doing that. And so, just just so you know, if you if you were wondering at the time when you were watching this the first time with Michael Dorn, what were people experiencing just at that moment when the to be continued came up? It was a lot of mouths dropped open, just hanging there, not knowing what to do with yourselves. I, I think I stood in one spot for probably a good felt like five minutes just in in shock. Uh, and you you raise something that's pretty interesting is that when you filmed part one, you didn't have the script or anything for part two. Did that have anything to do with? So from what I remember when I when I was a uh, you know, when I when I was a kid, then what was going around was that there was some talk in regards to an unknown of Patrick Stewart returning to the next generation playing Captain Picard. And that uh, it may, may have been a wild rumor, but I remember this clear as day that that was just that was in the ether was that the reason that was written the way that it was, was because uh, either he he may not return and that may or may not have been his choice. But I've remembered hearing that there was there was some question behind uh, behind that actor, behind the character. And that was why it was getting set up as him being assimilated and Riker taking command uh, and then with you not not uh, you know having the, the script or whatnot no one having that beforehand does that seem like it makes anything looking back on it now that 
oh, you know, or was this, is this news to you? Nobody told me anything. So I had no idea. Um, you know, I, uh, no, I mean, I was, you know, I was very low man on the totem pole. I was a guest star and, you know, nobody told me. Um, but it was interesting because when Jonathan and I got together, we said, because we have no idea how this is going to play out. If I'm going to be, maybe I was a Borg in disguise posing as Shelby. Uh, am I a villain? Are we going to end up in bed together? Um, <laughs> I, am I a hero? Am I a villain? We had no idea. So we talked about planting seeds along the way in seed, in part one so that every eventuality would make sense. So that's when you got those little like smirks from me, like, you know, mm, you know, suck on that yeah. guy uh, and eat my dust. All those little smirks were what if in case I turn out to be a really, you know, narcissistic bitch or a Borg and I'm going to white take everybody down with me. I had no idea. And then we also tried to play that there was some heat between them, that they were kindred spirits, that they, he recognized something in her. So in, in case that was a, a, a potential possibility. So, you know, we had to and I was used to this from the soap opera because you would be, you know, throwing a drink in somebody's face one week and then next week you'd be in bed with them. So um, none of it made any sense. So you would play heat and disdain and apathy and all of that, those feelings um, all got really good at trying to play that all at the same time. So that's what I remember is that we shot episode one and it was like, we have no idea where this is going. So let's cover all our bases. How does Elizabeth Shelby's ambition in Starfleet compared to Elizabeth Dennehy's ambition in acting? Oh, that's a really, really interesting question. I don't think if anybody's ever asked me that before. I think that when I was 28 and I was younger and I got Shelby, I was very, very different from Shelby. No, actually, I was more... Different. I was different because I was a people pleaser. I wanted everybody to like me. I cared too much about what people thought of me and Shelby didn't at all. Then you get to be older and you're like, why am I so worried about offending people? Nobody's worried about if they offend me. And so you become a little bit brasher and a little bit more thick skinned. Um, I also took me a really long time to figure out, especially with acting and auditioning that, um, uh, my goal, speaking of actors given circumstances, was for too much, was too, for too long um, trying to be what they want me to be. They don't know what they want. They don't know what they want. They want you to walk in the room and for them to go, that's it. That's it. That's the one. And it took me a really long time. And I think I was a good Catholic school girl and I just wanted everybody to like me. Um, my son it's so interesting having a son who's about the same age as I was when I was starting out. He, my son is 26 and he is just booking and booking and booking and booking. He's in the Weird Al Yankovic biopic. He's one of the band members. He's blonde, curly haired guy. I don't know if you saw it. He's the guy who says, dude, I've got chills in the trailer. And he did this. Um, um, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm going to watch for that. Yeah. So he's... Um, He's working constantly. He was in the last three episodes of season two of The Bear. 
and he, uh, Monsters of California, directed by Tom DeLonge, and he just works all the time. And it's so interesting because he, he didn't even have to figure it out. He just naturally is who he is and walks in the room and they hear him and they go, yes, yes, yes. And I'm so I'm in awe of him because when I was his age, I said, like, what do they want? Tell me what you want. And they don't know what they want. Now I know that. So that's another long explanation for I was way less similar when I was younger and I played her. And then when I do it's a chance to do her again, play her again. Um, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but I remember Terry was directing the episode and he came up and gave me a note. And I said, um, actually what you're asking for makes sense on the very next line. And he went, oh, okay, do that. And Elizabeth Dennehy at 28 would never have done that. Really? So, now why, why not? Why would you have not done that at that age? Because I would have been afraid to question the authority. I wasn't afraid to question Riker's authority, but I would have been afraid to contradict the director. I was just, you know, oh, whatever you want, whatever you want, whatever you want. But when he explained it to me, I loved his idea, but then it made me think another idea. And I went, oh, the line after that, that's what you want. That's where you want that, that change. And he heard that and went, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, you know, I just, he could have said, no, Actually, there's a reason why I want this, and we, but we would have had a conversation and a debate, a discussion, and he wasn't going to fire me, and he wasn't going to not like me. You know, I'm 63 now. I just give um, out of Fs. <laughs> exactly. I know. I know how you feel, and you're right. It's kind of a, it's kind of a maturity thing when you are when you are younger. You want to impress. You're not asking any questions. You. It's pretty much yes or no, sir. Uh, because you don't want to take that chance of losing a gig or job or position or being looked at negatively. Uh, and so you don't question those things. But I, I think one thing that may play into that, and you can tell me if you agree with this or not, it's the experience as well. So at that younger age, if you're going to say, well, but this this line would make better sense here or there, you don't you don't have the experience yet to know if that's going to matter. And so you've got kind of this intimidation of saying anything to someone that's been in it longer. Uh, and you you don't quite have that that feeling or that uh, that being comfortable with working with colleagues. Uh, you know, you can now you consider the director working colleague at the time when you were 28 is probably more of he's my boss. So if the, the boss says, say this, I'm going to say that and and not question it. Whereas I also at, um, when I was 28, everybody on set was except for Will Wheaton was older than me. I think maybe LeVar is younger than me. I'm not sure. But definitely Cliff Falls, the director, was older than me. But I'm older than Terry Matalas. <laughs> so I think that also made me feel like, you know, everything there is to know about the Trek world. But. I know this character and I and and it was such a little thing and I agreed with him. I just wanted to move it. I can't remember what it was, but I just wanted to move it to a different place where I thought it made more sense. And, um, you know, so you 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 get older and you also carry a little bit of authority from your age and being old, old, older than him. So. 
when you've you've been you've been out there and you've been doing it, you've got you've got that experience and you feel more confident in being able to to say to someone, this is why we should do this uh, and so forth. And that's funny because that was that was a lesson that I started to learn at a young age as well. And this takes me back to high school when I was in the drama club. And it was kind of a known thing that when you're when you're a freshman, you don't suggest anything. You just kind of do what you're told. And then the second year, kind of the same. You don't really you know, you just sort of these are the lines. That's that's it. And just you can clarify. But as you as you go up the rungs, as you get that experience, I thought it was just kind of a like a like a freshman hazing sort of, you know, sophomores are no good kind of thing. But as I got older, then at that at that young time, you need to have time to be able to to know what you're talking about and to know what you're questioning and to be able to back up a suggestion with with having that knowledge. And I appreciated that because that that was really that was really true. Like what what input am I going to have at a young age with someone that's that's been doing it for a lot longer than I have? You know, who, who am I to think that I'm going to walk in and say, oh, well, but no, I think we should do this or, or do that. That's that doesn't quite happen. But as you get more of that experience and we do this in our professional lives, I know I do this with work that, uh, you know, my my manager and I, we work more as as colleagues, not so much a manager subordinate type relationship, because we've both been in the industry for for quite some time. And. So we've both been around the block a lot. And when it comes to to that dynamic, you don't have someone who's young, fresh out of school that's going to do whatever you say, no questions asked, just wants to have the job, make an impression, whatnot. But you you've been in long enough to know how to communicate those ideas as to this is the best practice to do this this way. Why don't we try this that way? You're able to pull from the experience of this is how I've seen this particular thing done in the past. And here's what would work. Here's what might not work. So I think for you, it's kind of the same thing is as you had been in it longer, you develop more of that confidence. So what I it's interesting you brought up your son because I wanted to ask about this as well. Um, how much of your your desire for acting how much was that based on based on your father in his acting career? Were you wanting to follow in his footsteps? Was it something to I want to make him proud or I'm, I want to do this because I want to do this, not because of a parent or a sibling or a family member that's in the business as well? So um, when I was a little kid and my father was not famous, we had no money and uh, he was, um, uh, he did a bunch of odd jobs. So my parents were very, very young. My mother was 19 when she had me. So my parents had to get married and suddenly he was 25, 26 with three babies. So he uh, graduated from Columbia. He played football. He did a bunch of odd jobs. He worked for Burlington Mills. He was a stockbroker with Martha Stewart. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> He was a meat trucker. He was a motel security guard. I mean, he was just really trying to keep food on the table, but he always acted. So he did community theater, he directed, he was in plays, and we were in the shows. 
So there was no, hmm, I'm going to follow in his footsteps. It's just something that we all just did. We all did. My sisters and I, we were the no-neck monsters in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. We were the snow <laughs> children in Carousel. We were in all the shows that required little kids, fairies in the Tempest. Um, and it's just what we did. It was like a family hobby. You know how families go skiing or play tennis or go bowling or whatever families do. This was it. My mother stage managed, my mother made costumes and props and we made theater. And then things started to really happen for him uh, in the theater world. He, this is where he met Jonathan. He started going into the city and doing, um, they called them showcases and it was like shows, lunchtime theater um, or shows in bars that would be, you know, after dinner. And then he got cast uh, by Mike Nichols in the uh, streamers at Lincoln Center as an understudy. So we auditioned for that. So he just started working his way up and he uh, did that. And I think he actually went on a couple of times at Lincoln Center. And then Mike Nichols suggested my dad for the movie Semi-Tough. And that was it. That was then, you know, he just one job led from one to the other. So we were always acting and performing before he saw any success for a long time before he was making enough money to quit all his other jobs. And um, it was just natural for me and my, my, I have two sisters. One sister pursued it for a while. She doesn't anymore. And the third one, my youngest sister never did. But, um, you know, it's interesting when you have friends and their fathers would say to me at like sleepovers and stuff like that, like, how does your dad do it? The men would ask me with so much envy in their voices, like the bravery that's required to pursue your dreams when you've got a family. I mean, there was no financial stability growing up. It was very, uh, a gyps- not a, I don't want to say a gypsy lifestyle because that sounds, uh, it romanticizes it. We had no heat, and I remember firemen carrying us to the car to go to my grandparents' house because our furnace had run out of oil. We slept in, all three of us slept in the same bed at my grandparents' house. It was not romantic. It was really kind of scary. There was the financial instability that we had because my father was, um, you know, put this as a priority in his life. However, what that teaches you when you're growing up, that it's worth pursuing your dreams, uh, is a, an invaluable golden lesson that um, it's so interesting because I just realized that we tried to squish that out of my kids. We did not want our children to go into the arts. We put them in a really hardcore academic school. We didn't tell them, my husband and I are both actors. They would say, what do you guys do? Are you retired? I was like, doesn't matter. As long as there's food on the table, don't even ask us. They didn't go to premieres. They didn't. They knew my father worked and they did go to the Ratatouille premiere. But they, <laughs> as far as their parents were concerned, we tried to really steer them away from it because of that financial instability you know i didn't want them collecting unemployment you know as soon as a job finishes i sign on to unemployment people think it's all limousines and red carpets it's not that's why i was out there picketing for um you know a a good part of the 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 picket and i didn't want my kids 
having their uh, hearts broken and their dreams crushed. The, all the auditions you go in, all the rejections you get. We wanted better for them. And uh, it's a long story, but basically they, that's a highly academic school, which thank God it exists because for kids who are really smart, it's a great leg up, but they, you know, I would, my husband and I would go to the school in the coffee hour and they would say, oh, all the kids came back so jazzed up from calculus camp. And I'd be like, this may not be our school. Um, and then my, you know, I ended up with an actor and a filmmaker, my son. So nurture does not beat nature. They obviously have talent in their genes and they are talented and they need the arts. Everybody needs the arts. Everybody needs it like, like bread from heaven. You need to express yourself. You need to express the passion that's inside of you in writing, dance, whatever it is, cartooning, art, whatever. Somehow people need the arts and we tried, we tried to squash it out of them and it didn't work. So. <laughs> It was worth a try. Father, you know, we had this role model of this guy who uh, rolled the dice. Man, was it a gamble, a huge, huge gamble. But, you know, he did semi-tough and then it led from one job to the other and he kept getting work. And he, when he did the movie 10, after that, that was it. That put him, he never had to audition again. It was just receiving offers. And he was very, very, very lucky, but he was also very, very good. We miss him. We miss him very much every day. Absolutely. There are, I'm sure everyone could say that there are movies that they had seen that he was in. I know the very first one of his movies that I had seen was First Blood, was Rambo First Blood, the uh, the very first one. Um, and of course, it seemed like he was in, in everything for a time there. Now, do you do you feel like in education today with the, uh, the schooling that our young ones are getting now that we're not teaching enough of the arts and uh, whether it's arts, sciences, uh, just acting, drama, whatever it may be. What do you feel like we're just sorely lacking in teaching our kids today that they really should have? Oh my God, how much time do you have? <laughs> Got as much time as you want. <laughs> I, um, oh my gosh, it's, we, are we, are we up in six minutes? We, I just, I, we can go as long as, as you want. I don't have like a hard stop. I just, I like to say, yeah, I like to do these about an hour. So that way I don't uh, try to okay. any, as much as you want. The short answer is absolutely not. California is 48th in the nation in per pupil spending. I, when I was in school and when my parents were in school and, and talk to your parents too, every public school had music, had art, had some kind of expression. They had home, remember home, I'm much older than you, home economics, there was- Yeah, we had home ec when um, I was in school. Right, all of that stuff, anything extraneous got cut. Yeah. The two things where they can scrimp and save uh, when they're doing budget slashing is education and um, health. So the restaurants, I mean, uh, hospitals and ambulances, um, everything else you really, you know, you can't, you can't take away from. When my kids were at this very high academic school, 
um, a public school in LA, um, we were, parents would bring in reams of copy paper because they didn't have enough money to buy paper, copy paper for school. So if you don't have money for copy paper, you're certainly not going to be buying a potter's wheel and teaching ceramics. Right. Yeah. It seems like those are the first things to go when you have the when the chopping block is is rolled in and you've got to find something to cut. It always seems like Matt. Well, the, let me guess, I, have to, I have to leave. I'm just going to try to wrap this up. Yeah, sure. I'm sorry. Go out tonight. But um, I'm going to I'm going to you know, say something that a few people might not like, but they never could. They never seem to cut the football budget. Oh, <laughs> boo. I played football. You're killing me. I know exactly what you're saying. What if you're not an athlete? What if the arts, dance and music and visual arts can save a kid just as viably as basketball or football? Yeah. You're right. That's a very good point to make. So, uh, Elizabeth, I want to tell you how much I am grateful for you coming on tonight and spending some time talking with me. I had a really good time. Just wanted to ask you, are there any projects you've got coming up, uh, social medias you want to talk about, anything that you'd like our audience to know about that's uh, in your near future? Oh, you're so sweet. Um, well, Horizon Horizon One is coming out in uh, June 28th, I believe, is part one, and then in August, and hopefully I've I've not been cut out of it. But I play Michael Rooker's wife, so hopefully that that guarantees me some screen time. And uh, I I play an Irish woman, um, and uh, Michael is a pisser. He's so much fun. We had a great time together in Moab. So that's about it. And then you know, of course, Jack Lancaster, my son, and the bear and weird, the Al Yankovic story. And um, you'll know, you'll recognize the blonde curls. He's got blonde curly hair like me. And uh, yeah, so we're just, I'm so happy and so relieved that things are really um, just doing, going so well for both of my boys. I'm so super proud of that. That's great. That is great that you're proud of them and like what they're doing that they like what they're doing. So enjoy the play, hope it goes well. Thanks again for coming on and really appreciate it. And go watch Best of Both Worlds Part 1 and 2 again. <laughs> okay. Take care. Yeah, you have a good night. Take care. We are the Uncharted Podcast. Lower your inhibitions and surrender your years. We will add inspirational and hilarious trip content to your day. Your attention will adapt to subscribe to us. Resistance is futile. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us at patreon.com slash beyondtrek.